0: Section Thirteen of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter Seven: The Years of Opposition, 1783 to 1793, Part One. The pitched battle of 1784 ended, as most battles do, in the complete victory of the greatest tactician when the new parliament met on the eighteenth of may fox found himself at the head of a broken and dispirited party which numbered little over a hundred members face to face with a solid and triumphant body of some two hundred and fifty ministerialists enthusiastic in their loyalty to the crown and completely devoted to their young and skilful leader Fox himself had only succeeded in obtaining the second place on the poll for Westminster after the most unremitting efforts on his part, backed by the charms of the Duchess of Devonshire and the open advocacy of the Prince of Wales. As it was, his enemies succeeded in preventing him taking his seat for Westminster for more than a year by obtaining a scrutiny from the returning officer pending which no return was made to the house of commons of the result of the election fox who had also been elected for orkney at once challenged the decision of the high bailiff and pointed out that by an act of his own will he had practically disenfranchised westminster as long as the scrutiny lasted pitt however from party motives supported the returning officer and fox or rather fox's friends found themselves involved in a long wearisome and expensive inquiry which could have no other result than to waste money and embitter party feeling at last after nine months had elapsed the house of commons ordered progress to be reported and it was found that the scrutiny was complete only in one parish and that no material change in the position of the parties had resulted from it on this The majority became rather ashamed of their factiousness and although pitt continued his opposition the house on the fifth of march seventeen eighty five declared fox duly returned for westminster such a beginning did not seem to promise any decline in party virulence yet it was really but the last muttering of the thunderstorm as it passed away over the hills of time the majority which supported pitt was so ample and so homogeneous and the verdict of the country not merely upon the policy of fox but on the whole coalition so unmistakable that all thought of changing the position of affairs speedily dropped out of the thoughts of politicians on both sides parliament settled down naturally and quietly to the transaction of business under the guidance of pitt without fear of any renewal of political convulsion fox himself tired out in body and mind was anxious to leave Parliament and let the country take its chance without the help of an organized and active opposition, while he pursued at St. Anne's what was to him the far more enjoyable and profitable employment of the critical study of the best classical and modern poetry. It was only the stern call of duty and the urgent representations of his followers which prevented him from anticipating in 1784 the secession of 1797. The reasons for this attitude of mind are not far to seek. It is always difficult for men, almost impossible for politicians, to look with impartiality upon the withdrawal of distinguished men from posts of great responsibility. It seems to argue on the face of it a want of sense of duty and of patriotism, if not serious defects of temper and perseverance. The abdications of history are not reassuring. Diocletian, Charles V, and Christina are not the greater for their efforts at self-abnegation. Achilles sulking in his tents when the Trojans were at the ships is a picture on which every English schoolboy instinctively looks with contempt. And the instinct is right because it springs from the conviction that a man cannot withdraw from the work of his life while his powers are still unimpaired without grave loss to himself and others but to fox politics never appeared in this serious way as the work of his life he was not a professional politician as diocletian or pitt were professional politicians he was not even a professional parliamentary soldier as achilles was a professional military warrior the accident of his birth had made him a politician his extraordinary political gifts had made him a leader. His sporting instincts made him determined to be first in any race in which he was engaged. His real and strong sympathy for the oppressed, his burning love for liberty, urged him ever against his will to throw himself into the foremost place and fight stubbornly for office, because office meant the opportunity of advancing the cause of liberty. But in his heart of hearts, These were, after all, but episodes, episodes which from time to time took up into themselves all the threads of his life story, but which were still to him, essentially, episodes. His true life, as he conceived it to himself, was a life of lettered ease, of quiet domestic enjoyment. When he was young, his real interests were at Newmarket and at Almax. Now, in middle age, they were with Homer and at St. Anne's he had by this time formed the permanent connection with miss blaine usually known as mrs armistead which afterwards ripened into marriage and which showed him the delights of domestic happiness half of his great political blunders came from either an inability or a disinclination to take the trouble to understand the game of politics to find out what people were thinking about to ponder carefully how prejudice might best be overcome and difficulties avoided the work of the party manager was distasteful to him and scorned by him for the simple reason that politics in themselves had no attractions for him but only the ends which politics might serve or the passing excitement of the political battle so it naturally happened that when all possibility of carrying out the object which he desired passed away with the election of seventeen eighty four. And all the excitement of the duel with the king was over, it seemed to him mere waste of time to keep up a hopeless opposition to Pitt and Dundas when he might be so much more profitably employed upon Homer and Ariosto. Had he been left to himself, the world would have seen no more of Fox as a politician after 1784, but knowledge would have been enriched by healthy and eminently sensible criticisms on the great poets of Greece and Italy and possibly scholars might have been delighted by a treatise which would have set the question of the digamma for ever at rest. But it was not to be. Fox, above all men, was the slave of his friends. He felt deeply what he owed to those who stood by him in adversity, and at their call he emerged from his seclusion at St. Anne's to oppose Pitt's best measures, and to bring renewed disgrace upon his party by his mismanagement of the question of the Regency. The opportunities which attended Pitt on his entrance upon office were such as a constitutional minister rarely enjoys. For five years he was undisputed master of the country, without any serious question to face except that of regency. For nine years he was unhampered by war. Royal influence which had proved so fatal to so many of his predecessors from the very nature of things became extinct he was the king's own choice it was he that had won for george's victory respected by the king though not beloved deferential though not subservient self-reliant self-controlled incorruptible he was at once too powerful and too useful to be dispensed with though george the third never gave him his full confidence as he had given to north and afterwards gave to addington he never caballed against him The party of the king's friends insensibly passed into well-merited oblivion jenkinson their leader accepted a peerage at the hands of pitt the old cry of secret influence died away corruption which can only really thrive when opinion is much divided and votes are precious veiled her face and fled from the presence of a high-principled minister and a united nation the personal authority of the king in administration so long the war cry of the tory party was indeed still acknowledged in word but it ceased to mean much when it was constitutionally exercised to the prime minister so it came about that pitt was the strongest and most independent minister whom england had had since the days of walpole and under him the doctrine of the prime ministership which has done more than anything else to take political power out of the hands of the crown became finally established besides these advantages of his political position pitt also enjoyed gifts of character and mind which peculiarly fitted him for the post he occupied from his earliest boyhood he had made the house of commons his special study and at the age of twenty-five was a far greater master of the difficult art of directing that fastidious and critical assembly than many a veteran of fifty years parliamentary experience it is said that since the house of commons became the chief factor in the government of england there have been only five men who have thoroughly possessed its confidence as its leader namely pym walpole pitt peel and israeli and of those pitt stands out a head and shoulders above the rest in the whole of his long ministerial experience he never made a tactical mistake in parliamentary management his oratory too was exactly suited to his position and to the times in which he lived gifted with a rich sonorous voice and having at his command an extraordinary wealth of words which seemed to shape themselves without art or premeditation into majestic periods and found their natural completion in the appropriate virgilian quotation rising at times to powerful and stirring declamation never sinking into vulgarity or colloquialism he made his oratory exactly to correspond to the demands of the purest art form of the eighteenth century to the house of commons of those days when one and all of the members were trained in the school of imitative classical taste his speeches seemed perfect and flawless, formed on the best models, polished usque at unguam. To us they appear cold, stilted, and colourless, artificial in expression and unreal in feeling, the glitter of the sunlight upon the snow, as has been well said, or rather perhaps like a Greek statue, perfect in form, graceful in outline, instinct with feeling, but wanting life these great gifts of parliamentary tact and oratory were directed to their proper channels of usefulness by a character the distinguishing mark of which was self-control and by a manner carefully adapted to maintain by a cold and distant address that ascendancy which talent had gained pitt walked among mankind pale passionless and lofty with his eye in the air only among his most intimate friends would he unbend it is characteristic of him that while in private life he was witty and agreeable the wittiest man i ever knew said his intimate friend rose in public he never made or attempted to make a joke his one failing was drunkenness and that was to a great extent brought on by the necessity of stimulant to a frame physically weak and to a nature overburdened with the cares of an empire in the eyes of the eighteenth century it was a venial sin and one which he shared with most of his contemporaries such a man as this lived but for one object political ascendancy. having by great good fortune attained it at a very early period of his life his whole energies were devoted to its maintenance regardless of office he was greedy of power he became morbidly timorous in any action which might tend to endanger his ascendancy was careful not to embark if he could help it on any policy which threatened to be unsafe and drew back at once directly he encountered serious opposition thus he soon came always to take the line of the least pressure in his legislation he was said to think much more of the parliament which was to pass the law than of the country which was to be affected by it his greatest failures came from a want of courage in risking his ascendancy for what he believed to be a great national good the very antithesis of fox he counted over and over again the cost of everything he said and everything he proposed to do and frequently allowed the golden moment for action to pass away while he was counting if he had set himself in 1784 to deal boldly and comprehensively with the great questions which were clamouring for settlement parliamentary reform The removal of religious disabilities the abolition of the slave trade the union with ireland he would have saved england from the effects of a political convulsion which was dangerous only because it was delayed so long he would have rescued her from the grave dangers which now threaten her political and social welfare through the domination of a democracy mentally and politically uneducated and he would have handed his name down to posterity as the greatest statesman as well as the greatest economist among the ministers of the century but questions such as these involved risk they ran counter to powerful interests they were certain to excite formidable opposition so pitt deliberately let slip his unique opportunity and the most loyal majority minister ever had was used to reform the customs duties and establish a sinking fund while the real wounds of the nation were festering, undressed, and unhealed. One result of Pitt's careful and safe policy was a great diminution in the vigor of the opposition. The economical measures passed by Pitt in 1784 and 1785 were thoroughly non-contentious in character, and, though open to criticism in details, were calculated greatly to benefit the finances of the country. Fox, accordingly, gave them his hearty support. He did not understand finance. He would not read Adam Smith. It was not, therefore, likely that he would vie with Pitt on financial or economical questions, or would be able to detect any fallacy in his reasoning about the sinking fund. The commercial treaty with France, by which a limited system of free trade was introduced, was the only question which brought the whole force of the opposition to bear upon the ministry, The scheme is Pitt's best title to fame as a financial statesman. The idea was originally that of Shelburne and was directly inspired by the writings of Adam Smith, but to Pitt belongs the credit of having adopted it, made it his own, and with the able assistance of Eden as negotiator, carried it through. The speech of Pitt in introducing it was one of his greatest oratorical efforts, and was mainly directed to show the mutual benefit in commerce which both countries must infallibly receive fox on the other hand attacked it violently on political grounds he declared that france was england's natural enemy and it was only at england's expense that she could grow her object in the present treaty was merely to entangle england in her own system of politics in order to neutralize opposition to her further political aggressions burke sheridan Wyndham, and grey who made his maiden speech on this occasion all reiterated the same complaints and avowed their distrust of france but in spite of this appeal to national prejudice the measure was passed by a majority of two to one and the consumption of french wine in the country was at once nearly doubled without any corresponding loss in the portuguese trade the detestation of france which showed itself so strongly in the speeches of all the whig leaders at this time and especially in those of burke and fox sounds somewhat strange in the mouth of a party which a few years later was specially to identify itself with the french nation and to sacrifice much for the sake of france the fact was that in this as in so many other questions there was a great difference of view in the ranks of the opposition though was yet no difference of action to the mind of burke and the older school of whigs france itself appeared as the traditional enemy resistance against whom had been the cardinal principle of whig foreign policy ever since the days of william the third opposition to france was as sacred a duty as the support of the glorious revolution to fox on the other hand younger in years and more practical and more sympathetic in mind France was represented by her government and was hateful not because she was France, but because she was the greatest foe to liberty in Europe. Still, whatever the motive may have been, the union of the whole Whig party against the French treaty in 1785 shows how far behind their opponents they were at that time in appreciation of the directions in which the true liberty of a commercial nation can best influence the world during the two years which followed the passing of the french treaty the public question in which fox chiefly interested himself was the impeachment of warren hastings for some time burke had been deeply engaged in investigating the conduct of this remarkable man starting with a preconceived conviction of his guilt he soon found enough to persuade himself that hastings had not merely dishonoured the british name by his tyranny and extortion but that he was himself the source and centre of all the misgovernment of India. The subject preoccupied Burke. It became almost a mania with him. He could think and speak of nothing else, and the more he talked, the more Hastings dilated before his eyes as a monster of iniquity, in himself the incarnation of governmental wickedness. Fox and Sheridan approached the matter from rather a different standpoint the sufferings of the people of india had ever been a subject which easily touched fox's tender heart all his strong humanitarian instincts were with them against their oppressors he had lodged the power of control in the parliament of england in his india bill because he hoped thereby best to watch over the interests of the riots he did not like burke permit himself to be so carried away with passion as to be insensible to hastings real services to india and the country he fully recognised that without him the british power in india must have sunk but he thought that no amount of difficulties overcome no amount of services rendered could justify conduct in itself rapacious and unjust such arguments were merely a plea on a gigantic scale for doing evil that good might come and he thought that it would be a very useful lesson to teach both to the servants of the company and to the natives that no services however great no station however high could to the minds of englishmen be considered as excuse for tyranny or ward off the avenging stroke of offended justice but besides these considerations founded on general principles of morality it was not very difficult to see that an impeachment of warren hastings if successfully carried out would be of immense political advantage to the opposition it was an open secret that the king warmly espoused the cause of hastings it was whispered that he even wished to place him at the head of the board of control an impeachment justly founded on strong evidence would therefore place pitt on the horns of a dilemma he must either surrender hastings and forfeit the king's favour or support hastings and put himself in marked opposition to the moral sense of the country accordingly the opposition mustered all their strength and carefully prepared their scheme on the seventeenth of february seventeen eighty six burke moved for papers on the fourth of april he produced articles of impeachment of hastings for his conduct with regard to the Rohillas, the rajah of benares and the begums of oed Burke, Fox, and Sheridan respectively undertook the task of explaining these charges to the House. End of Section 13